0: If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to go to Genesis chapter 35, and uh, we are now continuing our series in Genesis, and we have come to chapters 35 and 36, chapters which I presume you would want to completely skip over or snore through. And the reason for that is because there's a whole bunch of Information about indiscretionary events and activities. There's a whole list of names that are in ancient Hebrew that are really hard to pronounce. And after you get through five or six of those, why do you want to continue on with them? And Esau took his wives, Ken Adad, the daughter Elon, the title Holy Bama, Anna, Zibion, Basemath, Ishmael, Nebaoth, Eli. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you're like, oh, Lord, thank you for the verse of the day. This is beautiful, you know. So we've gotten to this particular portion, and it's as last week, um, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to check it out. It's on the podcast, it's online now, and we are in a section of the Bible that a lot of people skip over, as I mentioned, and we at Spark try not to skip over anything. We like to tell the whole story. It's really important for us to engage in the full breadth of what this Bible is telling us, instead of you know, cutting out pieces that fit our expectations for what it is that we want or what we desire, it's important for us to submit ourselves to the fullness of this story. So I'd like to share with you some thoughts regarding um, chapters 35 and 36. And the title that I've kind of put to this is what's your family's story? What's your family's story? A couple introductory remarks and then we'll get to the passages in in, uh, Genesis chapter 35. In the almost two years that we've been doing Spark, I've been asked, and Danielle has been asked the question frequently, what is this community really about? I mean, we have, you know, hundreds if not thousands of churches in California. Um, if you are unaware, the number of churches in the United States is actually around 300,000 churches in the United States. And that's from very small churches to home churches to the large mega churches that you know about. And so the question is, why, why do we want to do this? Why would we start another community? Well, in addition to saying that this really is the best church that I've been a part of, and I define that the church by the people, so I can say that. I'm actually giving you a compliment by saying that. You are the best church that I've ever been a part of. Uh, in addition to that, there are some things that we have thought about and we've taught. There are things that we have um, engaged with story-wise that are really, really important to us that we sometimes have missed in the greater community of church. Um, And so there's three really key things that I think are important to us and we talk about it in Genesis 34 as well as in Genesis 35 and Genesis 36. The first one is the importance of history. We think history is extremely important. Our faith that we experience today is deeply interconnected to the stories and the events that have happened long time ago. The second is the importance of story. If you've been around us for any period of time, you recognize that we don't see the Bible just merely as a magic eight ball that you shake and you hopefully come up with some special answer for your uh, deep uh, engaging prayer request. We also don't see it as um, a tool to be used to substantiate your already preconceived opinions and ideas. So you have an idea of what God really says, and then you guys search through the Bible, kind of like a phone book, looking for the exact thing that you need to substantiate what it is that you uh, agree with. We actually think story is important. Narrative is important. And then for today, with this chapter, when we get to chapters 35 and 36, well, it started with 34 we're gonna talk about the importance of family. Family. Now, family, that word, family, can be a really complicated word. For most of us, I think it's important for us to understand our family because we recognize that family genetics plays a role in who we are. We recognize that we have received genes. (laughs) Some of you will get that in a second. Uh, We've received genes. We've received inheritance. We have become essentially the people that have given us our genetic history. Um, And so family for us is makes sense and it's important to help us understand kind of, oh, I, I have this portion from my dad, this portion from my mom. Family is also very important because it can be used sometimes against us. Uh, family is important for our culture because some people are just simply fascinated to know where you've come from, where, what kind of history, what kind of stories that you've told. I remember we were in a class with our good friend Greg, and he was talking about how one of his great-great-great-grandparents was actually on the Mayflower and come over. And so he was telling a story how he was deeply connected to this, you know, American history. And I looked at him and I said, man, you are old. Um, so th- that's really important. Uh, I like to tell people because I'm adopted that my family tree is actually a stump uh, because I don't have any history. Some of you find that entertaining. Some of you don't. Okay, so... <laughs> But I think it's hilarious because I have no family genetic history because I'm adopted. I was found. We have nothing, you know, really to to show for whatever history we have. I think family is also a difficult concept or an idea for us because of this website right here. And as I was... I think if we think about family and if we, if, we, if we engage with the concept of family, this is usually the first invocation of a feeling. And I'm sorry I'm going to do this, but these are just, these need to be shown. These need to be shown. Awkwardfamilyphotos.com And can I tell you that as I was getting prepared for this message and choosing photos, which ones to show you, Danielle looked over at me and says, please make sure you don't put the nude ones in. And so that's... So, so I've censored them for you already. Um, th- this is this is now in history. Here's another set right here. Awkward family photos, and you know, and you guys have all seen these. <laughs> You've all, I mean, this is. I mean, when we think of family, is it, I mean, this is probably you're mostly embarrassed. Like, oh, this is my mom. This is my dad. Oh yeah, we took that picture. Uh, I think family is a really difficult concept for many of us. This is a really challenging thing. And, you know, you look at these pictures and you think, what is wrong with those people? Like they actually, some of those people actually intentionally dressed up like this, you know, intentionally. You, in fact, you wanted that picture? Okay, You, you actually thoughtfully engaged with wanting that picture. So I think these people are weird, but just to... Be transparent and just to make sure you all know that these people are not weird. They're just like you and me. I have my own awkward family photo. (laughs) This is our previous dog who's passed away now, Davey, and I don't know why Danielle took that picture. (laughs) So anyway, now... That's what I think of when I hear the word family. We have wonderful traditions in history, but there's always this awkwardness. And and, and if we're honest, we're a little embarrassed by you know moms, dads, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters. You know but there's things in our family tree that we kind of wish. If I could go back in history with a chainsaw, just lop off that branch, that would be great. You know that would really make my tree look much better. Well. Genesis 34, 35, 36. In fact, Genesis, for this entire time that we have been studying Genesis, is in some ways, if you think about it, one smattering, one photo album full of awkward family photos. Yes? I mean, last week's story, I mean, you don't want that picture in your album, do you? Do you want Genesis 34? and, And if you were to go back into history and say, oh yeah, that's a part of my family, that would be the moment where you go, oh, this is a little weird, this is a little awkward. Well, chapter 35 and chapter 36 continue on with the diverse experiences that these people are having with their family. Unlike, however, our modern families, unlike the way we think about family what is happening in the scriptures is something, I think, much deeper and much more profound. And if we can tap into the idea or the concept of family of what's going on here in that's illuminated in chapter 35 and 36, that might actually help us to understand our family and our place in this grand narrative in this history. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to read just a few passages here. And what I'd like to illuminate for you, what I'd like to point out, what I'd like to show is that there are some really awkward family photos through this history. Now, where are we going Next week, we're going to begin the Joseph story. Now, many of you are familiar with the Joseph story. Amazing Technicolor dream coat. He has He's a, a wonderful man of dreams. He saves the nation. He's very wise. He makes it to the second highest rank in Egypt. This is a wonderful story of Joseph depending upon God, leaning upon God. Well, you we have to understand that Joseph's story begins in chapter 37, and there's 36 previous chapters of this very strange, odd, weird, unfortunate family history that leads up to it. And what you need to hear and what you need to see is that as much as we celebrate the greatness of what Joseph is going to do in the country of Egypt, in the nation of Egypt for God's people and for Israel, it is preceded by these stories It is preceded by a whole bunch of stuff you kind of wish you could go back and lop off that tree and say, I wish that wasn't there. It's preceded by people not behaving appropriately. It's preceded by people, forefathers, ancestors, that really didn't have their stuff together. Moments of greatness, moments of failure. Moments of great redemption, moments of turning away. So that's why this story is here. And so we're going to ask that question, what's your family story? Because you might be in that place too. Experiencing the greatness and the love of God, you wonderful, redemptive place where you're at. But what's your story? What's your history? Genesis 35. We're going to start in verse 1, and then I'll point out a couple things along the way. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob Said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Now here we have at the very beginning of this chapter, after everything that has happened with Abraham, with Isaac, at the previous stories of Jacob, what does this family have? Foreign gods. There's still something that they're holding on to. What is their story? Well, their story is still filled with idolatry. Their their story is still filled with indiscretion. They are secretly taking and stealing away these idols and these foreign gods. The word here in the Hebrew is kind of the idea of all this foreignness. Not necessarily an idol, but all of this foreignness that you have taken with you. And they're hanging on to this old pagan religion. Even though God is doing some redemptive work through the, the, through the fathers, through the patriarchs, they're still holding on to this old pagan religion. Then let us, verse three, then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem, which is interesting. Why did he bury these foreign things? What happened when Moses comes down off the mountain and he sees a foreign thing that the people have made? He destroys it. He utterly destroys it. He demolishes it. But here, instead of demolishing, Jacob buries it. It's almost as if he's not, even he, is not quite willing to let go, he's holding on to something skip ahead to verse 8, because I'm just going to skip through a couple of these passages. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. Now, it was just fascinating. I googled um, death of Deborah, and Google actually came up with a date, which is, I suppose, or accurate, I don't know, 1124 BC. So there you go. It knows all things. Verse 8 is weird. First of all, this is the first time Deborah is actually even named in the entire biblical narrative. We don't know her name up until this time. And then when it gets to her time, we only hear her by name. She's known as Rebecca's nurse. And then we know that she dies and is buried under the oak outside of Bethel. And then it goes on to tell the continuation of the story here. So what's this family story? Well, there must have been, I mean, we're reading into this, but there must have been some sort of significance to who this Deborah was. Just a nurse, but significant enough now to have a place, a prominent place in the scriptures. Part of this story, death and sorrow and remembrance. This is also now part of this story. We're heading on to this greatness of who Joseph is. But right now, at this moment, part of this story, death. Sorrow, and there was a significance about who Deborah was that she has a place now here with her name, and she is remembered. In verse 17, as we continue on, actually move down to verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. Here we have the second death in this chapter. First the death of Deborah, second the death of Rachel. And this death is mixed and complicated with the wonderful birth of another son. But she also dies too. What's also part of this story? Well, uh, a woman who has the blessing of having a son, but yet suffering. And then this change of a name, Benjamin's name originally is Ben-Oni, which means the son of my suffering or the son of my pain, the son of my struggle. Immediately after she dies, after Rachel dies, the father changes his name to Ben-Yamin, the son of my right hand, which is the complete opposite of death, sorrow, and suffering. It means the son of my strength son of dexterity, son of power, son of control. And so what do we have here in Genesis 35, verse 17? We have part of the story, suffering, hope, redemption. So at the top of the story, we have idolatry. We have Jacob, who's unwilling to give up those idols just by burying them. Further into the story, we have death, but wonderful remembrance. Further into the story, we have Rachel giving birth, but she dies. And so there's suffering, but there's also hope and redemption out of that suffering. We're going to get to another verse here, verse 22, that doesn't belong here either. This is so weird. Verse 21, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal-Eder. Verse 22, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. <laughs> Don't worry, I blurred this image out for you. Try to be censored. What? Wait, Reuben, who is the eldest son of Jacob? Reuben, who is, as a result of being the eldest son, supposed to be the most responsible, uh, the son that's supposed to be the most uh, have, have the most integrity, the one who's supposed to be the leader. The one who, whom we're supposed to follow goes in and sleeps with his father's concubine. And notice how this, I mean, again, here's another verse where it's just kind of squeezed in there. Like, what is this doing in here? And then it says, and Israel heard of it. That's it. There's no consequence. There's no, I mean, it just cuts off. It shuts down right there. You have these, all these crazy stories in here. What in the world is going on? So you have, yet again, in this story, the next chapter or the next scene, scandal. Reuben, who's supposed to be the responsible one, sleeps with his father's concubine. By the way, later on in Deuteronomy, this is going to be clearly outlawed. And rabbinical commentary would say, well, the reason why they put it in Deuteronomy is because it was here in Genesis. It's like, what are you doing? Israel heard of it. And then there's no consequence. What is that all about? And there's disappointment. Reuben what are you thinking? What, what's really going on here? Immediately after that in verse 23, it just goes on. Jacob had 12 sons, sons of Leah, Reuben, and just list the genealogy. What is this verse doing in there? <laughs> Which might be a wonderful question to ask yourself sometimes. When parts of your life emerge, you look back and go, what is that verse doing in my life? How did that get in here? How did that story happen? How did that chapter get written? That's exactly what happens here. You go through life and you're just trying to lead up to this wonderful story. We know Joseph is coming. We, we're finishing up this great call of God from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Woo! You know, how did that get in there? And then verse 29. Verse um, 29. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people old and full of years. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Now, the reason why that's significant is because in previous lists, the order of the sons was always Jacob and Esau. And so here at the end of this chapter, Isaac's sons are Esau and Jacob putting back that order of firstborn and so even here we have yet another piece of this story which is holding on to tradition heritage they're still not letting go now chapter 36 is again that portion where there's name after name after name after name a whole bunch of genealogies again you could actually spend hours and hours and hours picking apart the names what it is that they mean, where it is that they are located, and how those names are deeply interconnected to the rest of the story. We won't go there because that's an entirely different study. And again, for some of us, we might through the whole thing. So all we're going to say here in chapter 36 is simply that it is a listing since we have a listing of Jacob. Esau gets his own listing, and it's important because what we're going to find out through this is how did this group of people come about known as the Edomites, because Esau eventually is known as Edom. Esau's name means hairy. It also means fully formed and as I like to say because any man who is hairy is a fully formed man But he's also named Edom because his hair is dark red Which is the same word for red and they eventually become the Edomites and they are stationed They are they live down in this area Now the reason why that's important in in chapter 36 is because we're connecting it to the longer story These people are going to be a pain in the butt sometimes And the reason why chapter 36 is in here is because it's setting the stage for how they got there in the first place and why they act the way they do. This is going to be important later on in the Jesus story because Herod, the great, the one who slaughters baby when Jesus is born, is from Edom. So he comes down this line. So part of this story also is that there's protagonists and there's complicated people in their lives. Do you have complicated people in your life? (laughs) Then in chapter 37, you have this little clue and this little hint that this, what we've just gone over very quickly in chapters 34, 35, and 36 is deeply connected to the larger story of Joseph. Why? In chapter 37, starting in verse 2, It begins, this then is the line of Jacob. Now, if you hear the phrase, this is the line of Jacob, what do you expect to follow next? A whole list of genealogies. It doesn't do that. For the first time, the story starts to take a twist. This then is the line of Jacob. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, at the age of 17, Joseph tended flocks with his brothers. It begins into a narrative and into a story. And that is a literary clue to let you know that what is happening here is starting to shift and change and turn. In other words, all of this crazy, dysfunctional, uh, sordid, embarrassing, awkward past that has now preceded this story is now setting the stage for what is to come and how Joseph is going to redeem and live out the story coming in Egypt. All of this, deeply connected in one large, grand story. And in your story, just like in their story, there's idolatry. In your story, just like in their story, there's indiscretion. In your story, just like in their story, there's loss, there's disappointment, there's death. In your story, just like there is in our story, there's people who should have acted a certain way but didn't act that way. And so again, I asked the question, what's your family's story? Now, the biblical narrative, as I mentioned before, I was going to share with you. If we can think about why story is important in the biblical sense, it might help us understand why story is important in our family sense. Three things, because if you're going to give a sermon, it has to be a three-point sermon. That's what they teach you, so I'm going to do three points. Story, number one, establishes our identity, who we are, which is why chapters 34, 35, and 36 and the entire narrative of all these things are happening. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we ask the question, why is that in there? Well, it's because story establishes our identity. Second thing, the reason why those stories are in there, the reason why those disappointments are in there, the reason why those verses are kind of crammed in the middle of this whole thing is because story is also calling us to a legacy. Legacy, what it is that we leave behind. What it is that we pass on. Because Joseph is going to inherit this entire story. That's the legacy that's given to him. How does he live into that is what we're going to see take place from chapters 37 on. And then this is really key. Story reminds us of authorship. Story reminds us that this entire life that we're living, that is reflected in the scriptures, has an author, and you may not be the person who's authoring that story. First, identity. Our good friend Lois Tverberg blogs at ourrabbijesus.com. I encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Some of you have probably read her books, "Following in the Dust of Our Rabbi Jesus" and others. She writes this, which I think is really poignant. Explaining what each family was like and relationships between families was very important to understanding the society as a whole. That's why we find so many stories about the founders of each family in Genesis, because they were key to each family's self-definition. Please understand, when you read these stories from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Deborah and Rebecca and Rachel, when you read these stories... They are there because they are setting the framework and the history for the kind of person that they are to this day. They are reflecting back upon their history and recognizing that what has happened then is greatly influential into who I am now. That's why those stories are there our identity oftentimes comes from what it is that we do our employment how much we make who we're married to what our gifts or talents are and our identity in our modern day comes from accomplishment achievement individualism possessions whether you live in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood a biblical sense of identity comes not from what you own and what you possess your biblical identity comes from the stories of your past, the people that have come before you. They're telling the story because that's part of their history. They have people that have slept around. They have people that have done horrible things. They have people that have completely disobeyed God. They have people in their past, ancestors, fathers, and mothers who have completely rejected the ways of God. And guess what? They're going to write it into the story because you have to first recognize and accept that that is also part of your identity. Accept and recognize that that comes with the package of who you are. That's why the Bible writes these stories. That's why we here at Spark tell those stories. That's why we should not skip over those stories, because we have to face them, deal with them, accept them, and then move forward to what kind of legacy are we going to leave, even in the midst of those stories. Now, a legacy is something that you send on. A legacy is something that you pass on. A legacy is something that you give. I don't know where this quote came from. I tried looking it up, but even quote investigator.com said, we have no idea. So here it is. You can figure out where it is, where it comes from. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. What a fantastic quote to recognize that as we have brought our identity from our history, our family story, we are actually commissioned to leave it, borrow it. We are borrowing it from our children. What is it that we pass on? And then this is really the, the question of legacy. Legacy in most conversations that I've had is about what do you leave with assets? Do you, are you going to leave them a good job, home, safety, security? Are you going to leave them all of the financial, material things that they're going to need to succeed? Is that what's most important? This legacy, the asset legacy? The biblical story is who really cares about that. The biblical legacy is what story are you writing and are you telling for the generation that is coming? For these little ones, the reason why we do the blessing, the reason why we welcome them in, the reason why we love them tremendously, why is because we don't we don't have a church building. You know, we don't have all of the great But what we do have is every single one of you building your story into their lives of love, acceptance, of a community, of a church that says you are valuable. You matter here. God has created you. God has gifted you. We're so glad you're here, even in your youngness, even in your whining, even in your yelling and screaming, even in all of that. Why? Because you are such a gift. So the biblical legacy is not... Stuff that we leave them. It's stories that we tell them and the stories that we are writing. And then I'm very, very tempted to not say your story. What is our story? All of us together. And this is why, why the Bible is telling a story and not just a list of concepts, commandments, ideas, principles that you're supposed to follow. It's telling you a full story. This is a lengthy quote, but I thought it was worth it John Golden Gay has written extensively about Old Testament theology, and like we, I like to do every now and then, I'll try to do my best to sum up a 900-page book in one pithy quote. So that's what we're going to try to do. The biblical story comprises a beginning and a development, but no end. Catch that for a second. A beginning, a development, but there's no end. There's no conclusion to this story. Why? That reflects and testifies to the location of the people who write, read, and live within the story. They live after the exodus, or after Sinai, or after the occupation of land, or after David, or after the signs of exile will end, or after the rebuilding of the temple, or after the achievements of Israel, or or after, 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 after. All these stories that they're telling, we are living after those things. But none of these events has turned out to be the end. Those stories that we just read, they weren't the end. Each brings an implementation of God's rule and generates a proclamation of good news, but none ultimately suggests that the story is over. Oh, I love that. Did you catch? None of these stories that we read the Dina story, the Reuben and Bilhah story, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story none of these dictates that the story is over. The moments of achievement turn out to. S- Turn out not to signal consummation. The moments of calamity turn out not to preclude hope. The narrative invites its community, all of us, to own the fact that the story has never yet come to an end. And it inexorably insists that its community lives within the story. What I think he's saying there is that we read these stories and we think there's a period at the end of those stories But what is really going on there is that you and I are reading those stories because we recognize you and I are actually the completion of those stories. What we do with those stories, how we respond to those stories, how we live as a result of those stories. So when we read these stories about the indiscretions, about their failures, about the things that they did right and the things that they did wrong, you and I ought to be commissioned and feel called and pushed to say, oh, how are we going to now finish out this story? Very similar to how Joseph is going to say, how are we going to finish out the story? Later on, Jesus is going to say the same thing. How am I, in this world, going to live and finish out that story? In other words, what is our legacy? What is it that we are going to continue to pass on as a result of these stories that have come along? And lastly, authorship. In the midst of these Verses in chapter 35, there's this amazing little snippet and paragraph that says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number, God is saying to Jacob. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. Okay, it's time to play charades. Two words, sounds like, or one word, sounds... What does this sound like? Does this sound at all familiar? Do you recognize this language? Well, if you've been paying close attention, not to just the snippets, but to the grand picture that God is painting as a result of Genesis 1-1 all the way through, you'll recognize something. Be fruitful, increase in number. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like Genesis. Wait a second. Even in... The midst of Reuben and Bilhah, even in the midst of Jacob, still not quite ready to let go of the idols, even in the midst of the family, taking all this foreignness and idolatry with them, even in the midst of these indiscretions, God is speaking into that story. The same narrative he began in Genesis. Be fruitful, increase in number. Just like I created wonderful, this beautiful world out of nothing, I spoke into the chaos and brought forth a wonderfully created order. Guess what, Jacob? Into your life, I'm going to speak the exact same thing. Into your life, into your chaos, into your dysfunction, I'm going to speak, be fruitful, increase in number. Just like I spoke into the created order. And into the chaos, God speaks, and out of chaos comes order and beauty Shalom, the wonderfully created order. So God is doing the same thing there. Nations are going to come from your loins. What does that sound like? I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham, all the way back to Genesis chapters twelve, chapter fifteen, and chapter seventeen. The same call that God gave to Abraham, which was to redeem the world, is now the same call He's given to Jacob. The exact same thing. And so this story of Abraham is repeated again in Isaac, which is repeated again in Jacob, which is etc. etc. Et Do you see the pattern? Somebody's authoring this. Somebody, even though you and I are telling some really wacky stories, somebody is still infusing each and every one of our stories with the redemption, the hope, and the call, and the commission to live out God's kingdom here on earth, even in spite of our indiscretions, even in spite of our delinquencies, even in spite of the fact that we may still hold on to foreign gods. God is still writing this. So, three things story establishes our identity. Recognize and accept that who we are as a people comes from the stories that are told by our ancestors. Number two, this story, chapters 34, 35, and 36, even those chapters call us to ask the question, what are we going to leave behind? By the way, this has nothing to do with whether or not you actually physically, biologically have children. All of us are called to leave behind something for the next generation. What is it that we are going to leave behind? What is our legacy? And three, what I hope is most important, the thing that I hope you take away that's most endearing, is that even in the midst of all of this sordid, complicated, dysfunctional past, God is still the author. He's still writing, be fruitful and increase in number. He's still writing, I have called you and I have blessed you. He's still writing, greatness is going to come from your loins you may not want to write that on a bumper sticker. But <laughs> but even in the midst of that, God is still writing those things cuz he's the author. Now, we're going to get to some crazy stuff. You know, maybe by 2018 we'll be in the book of judges. And when we get to the book of judges, it's going to be a rough go. God is still the author. He's still writing the same redemption. He's still writing that same hope. He's still writing that same creation even throughout the whole thing. And that's why the biblical story, the biblical narrative is written in the form of story because it's trying to communicate these things. If we only take away good, do that. Bad, don't do that. Good, do that. Bad, don't do that. If we only take away these simple, pithy, little moralistic nuggets, we may be missing something much larger of what God is trying to do in and through us. And as Goldingay said in his quote, these stories are actually inviting us. They are inviting us to come into this grand story, into this grand narrative. And guess what? These Bible people are no longer just Bible people because they are you. Uh, There's a passage in Isaiah that says, remember Abraham, your father, and Sarah. Remember Sarah, your mother. Remember them. Guess what? You have come from the same quarry that they came from. You've come from the same place that they've come from. And just like God was writing a wonderful grand story, identity and legacy through them, he's doing the same with you. These stories invite us in. And you, as a result of reading these stories, as a result of entering in, start to see when you walk out this door, when you get up in the morning, when you brush your teeth, when you make dinner at night, when you have to go to school and you have to go to work and you have to deal with all of the crazy that you have to deal with, God's writing his story even in that moment, too. And every now and then, there's going to be a verse thrown into your story. We're like, oh, what was that doing in there? And you're going to be like, I hope I'm going to hide that verse because I don't want anybody to see that verse. Yeah? Those verses are in here as well. So you're in good company. And even though those verses are there, you can rest assured that God will still be doing his work. He will still be giving you his call. He is still going to author your story. And the wonderful, amazing God of this universe who has created this amazing, beautiful creation out of chaos and nothingness is doing the same thing in you. And that's what makes this faith journey an incredible story to go and tell. That's great news. So, what's your family story? What's the story that you're going to tell? What's the story that you're going to tell to people when they ask you about your life? What's the story that you're going to live? What's the story that you're going to leave? Chapter 34, 35, 36. They're part of the story. Chapter 37, 38, 39, 40, 50. That's all part of the story. Spoiler alert. Chapter 50, verse 20 ends with this phrase. But God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. For the saving of many lives. That's at the end of the story that's coming. We're going to have to get through some stuff to get there. But that's the end. Or is it really the end? God, thank you so much for this amazing group. I bless you tremendously for these stories. May we accept the invitation that these stories are leading and calling us to. May we see our life and the lives of the people around us as grand characters in this story. And may we accept all of the complicated past stories that have been told in our lives. And may we... Be challenged and commissioned to live into a future story, one of hope and redemption, one of your creation, one of your authorship. Um, Especially in the midst of these young ones, God, we bless them tremendously. Help us to live and write a great story for them, one that is going to radically transform their lives as well as this world as they grow up into it. Be with us now as we depart this place And help us to live this story out wonderfully so that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray in your name, amen.